Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Friday, September 25th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Today on the show, my two-part conversation with one of Canada's finest songwriters. I really believe he belongs on like the Mount Rushmore of Canadian music. You know, you have your Leonard Cohen's, your, your Joni Mitchell's, and I think Bruce Coburn belongs up there as well. So my two-part conversation with Bruce Coburn, where we get into his love for the guitar, how he started, he plays the, one of the first songs he ever wrote, uh, and we talk about some of his hits. And I have to say, I don't do this very often, but I, in the interview, was like, just, I don't know, play, play some hits. And he did. Very nervous thing to look at a guy with a lot of hits and be like, eh, I know you got a new record and I love it, but like, play, play some hits too. I was excited for you to hear this. After that, uh, Simone Saunders and Takiki Walker are two artists who are making groundbreaking art together. But here's the thing. They've never met in person. They've only met over Zoom. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And then finally, Susan Rogers. What a gift this is. Susan Rogers, who is the engineer of one of the greatest albums ever made, Prince's Sign of the Times, will give you a tour of that record. We'll talk you through that record. All right. Show starts now. All right, take a listen to this. All right, so that's Bruce Coburn, you know, just one of the greatest songwriters in our country's history. End of discussion. Wondering where the lions are, if I had a rocket launcher, lovers in a dangerous time, coldest night of the year. Come on. Bruce Coburn released his first album 50 years ago, and today you can find the new 50th anniversary box set featuring three of his classic records on vinyl. The track you're hearing right now is called April in Memphis. So I'm just turn that up a little bit. Oh yeah, thanks buddy. Bruce Coburn is an absolute poet when it comes to lyrics. I mean, he wrote the line, you got a kick of the darkness till it bleeds daylight. What's better than that? But something you might not know about him is that he's also one of the greatest guitar players in Canadian history. I was thrilled to be able to talk to him about his instrumental album, Crowing Ignites, back when he released it last fall, because it turns out Bruce's relationship with his guitar goes back a long way. What was the first song you learned at your guitar lesson? Do you remember that? Oh, it, it might have been Please Help Me, I'm Fallen. It was some country song that I had no empathy with at all. Right. But the teacher was, you know, going starting with something simple. And I already knew how to read music. I had, on other instruments, I'd taken a year of clarinet and three years of trumpet before I got around to the guitar. So, you know, I had a sense of the theory and it was a matter of translating it to the guitar, which was excruciating at first. You know, the, I mean, the trumpet... If you play it a lot, your lip gets sore. But, it, but uh, you, you know, when you're learning to play guitar, especially if you don't have a really easy one to play, it's uh, quite painful on the fingers. That makes sense to me, you know, because I, I, I see you as a guitar player. And this is just me, by the way. But, like, but I see you as a guitar player not beholden to shapes. You know what I mean? Like when I play the guitar, 
I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm stuck in first position for a lot of it. And when I go up, it's always in kind of those normal positions. But I see you as not necessarily beholden the shapes. I see you approach the guitar often like it's a piano. You can kind of play anything you want on it. So it makes sense that you had a lot of, had a lot of theory, a lot of music before you just picked up the guitar. Yeah, well, it, it, I, I had that before and I had a lot of it after as well. Like I, I studied theory through high school and then I went to music school for a couple of years to and studying composition. So but you know what I mean by that? A fairly like, heavy dose of it. Yes, I do. I know exactly what you mean. It's 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 a shrewd observation or at least a clear one. <laughs> uh, and the um, yeah, because the, I, one of the interesting features of the guitar, as distinct from other instruments, is that you can play the same note in a whole bunch of different places which means you can play other notes with it depending on where you play that note uh, in, in, in different ways, right? So uh, that's something that I've tried to make use of. And the um, I, I just learned a lot about harmonic movement in the course of those studies, which I was fairly poor at. I mean, I, it wasn't like I was a great student. You weren't a good music student, really? Not really. I was too lazy and too unfocused. But, uh, but I learned a lot just by osmosis. The classes, the composition classes, were divided into the members of a big band, basically, right? So you'd write arrangements for the class, and then bring them in, and they would be played. So you you really got to kind of hear and see graphically the effect of what you were writing, and I don't that hasn't had a profound effect on my songwriting in any direct way, but but it's it, it, there's an attitude built into that that kind of informs what I do a lot. So. I, and I and I don't like being locked into shapes and mm. in particular chord things. I, I mean, sometimes you get a lot of mileage out of that. There's power there for you know that's a choice to use. But but uh, um, I discovered kind of when I, while I was at Berkeley that I really didn't like chords very much. I, I I really liked music that didn't have any chords better than any other kind. You mean music with a lot of like maybe some harmonic movements, maybe some some notes. Some... No, I mean like Indian music or or uh, or Arabic music, or, where they just don't pay any attention at all to chords. Right. You know the 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 the, the architecture of the music, rather than being uh, a bunch of notes sort of um, held up against each other to sort of see how they interact. It's it's. Uh, the architecture is more like a, a moving melody over top of a d- bass drone. Mm. So you know, instead of instead of this these blocks of things moving around, you you have single lines, but they're it's always measured against a single note that you're playing, right? So um, or that someone else is playing, as in the case of that music. So you, um, I, I can hear people yelling at the radio right now. Yeah. That's fine, Tom. Can Bruce please play a song? <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what they're saying, here, do they? Um, <laughs> what do you... only, be careful what you wish for, folks. <laughs> the talking might be better at this time of day, but but um, you're going to play. An, you're going to play an old an old one. Well, yeah, I th- we were talking about what to do, and it was suggested that I do something old and um, something borrowed, something blue. <laughs> well, a little of the, yeah. There's some of that in everything I do. I think <laughs> borrowed and blue for sure, but. But um, this year um, is basically the 50th anniversary of the recording of my first album. It didn't come out till 50 years ago next year, but it but we recorded it in the fall of of '69, uh, and so here we are, you know, 50 years later. So it seemed sensible to do something old. This isn't off the first album, though. I don't really currently have anything under my hands that, from that album, but but uh, it's from one of the early ones. What is it? 
It's called When the Sun Goes Nova. When the sun goes nova And the world turns over I don't want to be alone So honey, come on home If you're in a valley When the dam breaks pally You're going to feel alone So honey, come on home When you're on the bump And the policemen come If you lose your grip Or your trousers rip I'll be waiting, dear not expecting that at all that's bruce coburn with when the sun goes nova <laughs> bruce does tin pan alley bruce does uh bruce does rags i <laughs> well, started out doing rags a lot like stefan grossman and those guys that kind of no i just tried to learn jelly roll morton songs the way he played them i mean he played the piano so it was a there was a lot of translating involved yeah but but just that music in general i i i i did a gig with stefan grossman one time he's a great guitar player in Italy, actually, Stefan Grossman and John Renborn and I did a show, and uh, it was a lot of fun. But um, but I, he wasn't somebody. I mean, I was aware of him being there, but I listened to the old guys. So, as we mentioned, it's been fifty years since the first record. Like, was the was the plan to be a touring performer? Like, was that the plan? Was that the dream? There was no dream and no plan. It was. I mean, I. I guess you could call it a dream that I thought I imagined, you know, spending my life with a guitar, but that's as far as I took it. 
I had, I had no clear image of where I was going to go. When I went to Berkeley, I thought I was going to get a, a music degree, and then I didn't know what would happen after that. My parents liked the idea of a degree because it was, quote, something to fall back on, unquote, which an artist should not have. But uh, um, nonetheless, that was, the, that was their plan. Yeah. But, you know, halfway through there, I kind of realized that it wasn't my plan and, and that I should be somewhere else. And I... It, I didn't know where, but not there. So I left and um, went back to Ottawa and joined a band and started writing songs. How'd they feel about that? They were worried. They were very good about it to me, but, but I know they were worried for a few years in there where I didn't seem to be doing anything, right. you know, playing in bands that weren't very good and, and so on. But, but I was writing and learning some stuff. And at the end of the 60s, I sort of played in enough bands that weren't quite it for me, and um, I decided I was going to go solo. When do you think they calmed down? Like, when do you think you you did something that made them go like, okay, Bruce When they saw me on stage at the National Arts Centre. That, you know, it took a few years. That must have been meaningful to you. It was meaningful to them. I didn't know anything about it until decades later. I mean, nobody ever talked about that stuff. Yeah. They said they were proud of me and everything, but... uh, you know, when things picked up after the first album came out and, you know, a lot of stuff started happening fast. And um, so they're, they got more relaxed with it all. You're going to play another song for us now. Yeah, I got a tune for this. So, yeah, okay. Um, this, is, this is a hit, right? Well, that's what was requested. Oh, yeah, we love a hit. Play right one here. of your hits. Play, play a medley of your hit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the great Newfoundland songwriter Ron Hines said he was in the grocery store one day and someone came up to him and said, Hey, weren't, weren't you Ron Hines? Yeah. <laughs> That's so Newfoundland. That's great. I get, aren't you Tom Cochran? <laughs> I get that. I get that. And I, and I get our, Hey, you're Murray McLaughlin. And I, and I get, uh, one guy accused me of being Bruce Springsteen in a hotel lobby at one point, and I said, "No, no, that's not me." And he got mad at me because I was denying it, and he was sure. <laughs> but he had the wrong Bruce; he didn't realize it. Right. You know? And I guess I was in a mood that day. I didn't straighten him out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Where's the button on this thing? There it is. Okay, the world survives into another day And I'm thinking about eternity Some kind of ecstasy got a hold on me I had another dream about lions at the door They weren't half as frightening as they were before But I'm thinking about eternity Some kind of ecstasy got a Hold on me Walls, windows, trees, waves coming through You be in me and I'll be in you Together in eternity Some kind of ecstasy gotta hold on me Up among the firs where it smells so sweet 
Or down in the valley where the river used to be I got my mind on eternity Some kind of ecstasy got a hold on me And I'm wondering where the lions are Wondering where the lions are Whoa, wondering where the lions are Flying boat rises off a lake Thousand-year-old electric lifts Doing a double-take Pointing a finger at eternity And I'm sitting in the middle of this ecstasy Young man marching, helmet shining in the sun Polished and precise like the brain behind the gun it Should be, they got me Thinking about eternity, but some kind of ecstasy got a hold on me. And I'm wondering where the lions are. Wondering where the lions are. Whoa, wondering where the lions are. Ooh, yeah, yeah, wondering where the lions are. But I'm wondering where the lions are. On the nod on the surface of the bay One of these days we're gonna sail away Gonna sail into eternity Some kind of ecstasy got a hold on me And I'm wondering where the lions are Wondering where the lions are was a hit that's one right there that was bruce springs <laughs> hornsby no, 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 no that's bruce coburn doing wondering where the lions are i'm tom power the luckiest gentleman in the world and this is q um so this has been fun talking to you a little bit about music and your life up to this point i, I want to talk to you about something that i i noticed when i was at the songwriters hall of fame show with with you a little bit a while ago and you were honored that night uh, as well as a couple other musicians in, including neil young and um, william prince uh, came on stage and I believe he performed Stolen Land. And it made me think a little bit about um, how, you know, in, currently in this country, we're having a lot of conversations around truth and reconciliation and, mm-hmm. you know, reconciling um, with, with the treatment of indigenous folks in this country. And you've been writing about this for a very, very long time. I mean, long before this kind of current moment we're having. And it made me think, like, was there a specific moment 
you know, maybe in your youth or when you were writing music um, that made you maybe a bit of awakening or a moment where you realized maybe I have something to say here. Or this is something that needs to be addressed through my, through my music. Are you thinking about uh, Aboriginal issues in particular yeah. or ever, anything? Because I think, it, I think Indigenous the, Aboriginal issues. Yeah, because that came a little bit later. I mean, there, there, the, the, there was sort of fertile ground for for that issue and others to fall on, but uh, that, that came just from kind of a basic liberal upbringing. Uh, but um, I mean, it was it was thought that it was appropriate to pay attention to what was going on around us and, and so on. But but nobody in my family was – certainly not the, not my forebears were, were what you'd call an activist or anything. But um, so I – all I knew about Aboriginal culture was Tonto really until I went out west the first time in 1970 and uh, started meeting my peers that um, happened to be from First Nations. And I had no idea what they had grown up with. I mean, well, I guess it's not fair to say I had no idea, but I had a very um, sketchy notion of, of what it was to be native in North America. Um, you know, I mean, I knew that the Western movies were not the truth, but uh, but I, you know, in terms of empathizing with a person, I mean, I, it was it was meeting Shingus and Tom Jackson and and people like that. And then, and hearing stories about th- how they'd grown up, in contrast to how I'd grown up, mm. that started me thinking about those things. And and you know, you go and you you can travel all over the West, and you can find, especially back in the '70s, but it's still there. You know, really overt racism directed against that population. Uh, you can go to museums and you see all this beautiful stuff that was sort of looted from from the culture before the culture was uh, subjected to attempts to destroy it. And uh, there's just a heartbreaking poignancy to that 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 uh, prompted a song like Red Brother, Red Sister from the mid-'70s. What's your, what's your perspective on like being from outside of a culture? Like what's your perspective on being outside of that culture and still singing about the issues from another culture. Well, it's, if, if you have a heart and a conscience, I mean, what's not to sing about? Yeah. The the uh, I don't think that I think I think certain kinds of statements need to be made by the people themselves, but I don't see why they would why they shouldn't have allies, mm-hmm. and I don't see why I shouldn't say what's in my heart to say, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what it's about. Mm-hmm. So you know that includes. Uh, justice for native people too i want to play a little clip right now just take a take a listen to this from sarawak to amazonas costa rica to mangy bc hills cortege rhythm of falling timber what kind of currency grows in these new deserts these brand new floodplains That is Bruce Coburn from 1988, his album Big Circumstance, that's If a Tree Falls, um, a song that's become a real environmental anthem. But my question is, when you write a song like that, it, are you hoping it will help bring about concrete change or are you just writing about what's on your mind? 
Well, you always hope, but but I don't expect it to do any any given song to do any measurable thing. Um, yeah, of course, you know, I hope that people will be moved by what I what's by what's in my heart and on my mind, and you know that they'll want to do something, but um, the or that they'll want to support the people who are able to devote big chunks of their lives to addressing these kinds of problems. Uh, you know, there's. We can't all be David Suzuki, but we can all support him, mm-hmm. for instance, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, the um, uh, it, it mostly the songs come from with, from a, a, a personal response to something. I'm not thinking agenda, you know. When I write a song like that, it's I, I, that particular song was occasioned by a, a radio documentary that I heard on one of the Toronto college stations. I don't remember which one talking about the destruction of rainforests in Borneo. And I I had never been in a tropical rainforest, and but I'd been in rainforests in B.C., and I kind of had a sense of what that would mean. Uh, but there were also, of course, that in, in the third world, when forests get destroyed, the people that live in them are... are Tend, tend to be destroyed also, and so that was happening in in Borneo, and it certainly happened all through Latin America, um, and so you know it, it just seemed there was a lot to say there. Wildlife at a rate of the species every single day. Take out people who lived with this for a hundred thousand years. That's a little bit of If a Tree Falls from Bruce Coburn's 1988 album, Big Circumstance. You've been listening to my conversation with the great songwriter Bruce Coburn. You might know his hits like Lovers in a Dangerous Time or Wonder Where the Lions Are. Right now, you're hearing a track from his instrumental album. Crowing Ignites. It's called Bardo Rush. So I'm turn that up for a sec. Bruce Coburn is an absolutely genius guitar player. I remember one time I was at the Ottawa Folk Festival and I was backstage and I watched him get ready for his set that night by playing guitar for five straight hours. So he obviously has an incredible relationship with that instrument. I had the chance to sit down with Bruce and talk about his relationship with the guitar when this album came out last fall. I was curious as to why uh, an instrumental album would be the output from you right now. Mm. Um, well, I'll, I'll ask it. Why? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Um, you know, I made an instrumental album because I felt like it. Yeah. That's the short answer. Mm-hmm. Uh it, it just seemed like a good time to do that, not because of what's going on in the world, but just in terms of what I've been up to. But um, uh, really, yeah, there's a lot to talk about, but uh, but there's also a lot of blather, and and you know, I don't know that it's, that adding more words to the blather is really going to have a very positive effect. I, I mean, there are things that are certainly worth talking about, it, but the biggest one for me, in the short run, is is uh, that the, is the issue of a dialogue. I mean, the terms liberal and conservative in the states are pejorative mm. it, it, on one side or the other, right? Mm. You can't you can't say those words without people getting their hackles up. Mm-hmm. And 
That's that's ridiculous. It's it, it, and it it's a measure of of how great that gap has become between people who let's say people who are fearful and people who are hopeful, or mm-hmm. people whose hopefulness is based on their fear, and people whose hopefulness is based on the idea that you might actually be able to do something. That that I mean these. And we're all fearful. I mean, anybody that thinks should be fearful in the current world. But but you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to make stupid choices because of that. So, and unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of stupid choices on all sides of it. So, uh, how do we get past that? I don't know that it's with words. Yeah. You know, uh, music is a bonding agent. It is. And maybe maybe there's something there. So uh, you're going to play a track from the new record? I thought I would. And uh, I got a tune for this one too. So. Yeah. Oh. Are you going to play with me on this? Yeah, I can if you want. Well, let's, we could try it and sure, see if it sure. works. You go cool with that song? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's called, the tune's called Blind Willie, but it's really a pop staples kind of. Sure. I'm just going to hook up quick. You guys give me a second. Just That was fun, man. Fun. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks. Really. That's, that's very nice. cool. That's Bruce Coburn performing Blind Willie, and I, I got to frail along. That was fun, man. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I got just a couple of uh, just kind of closing questions here, um, and there might be a little rapid fire. But so, so like, it's fifty years from your first album, and um, give give me one of your favorite memories. Give me when you look back, what one sticks with you from fifty years in the music industry? 
It's all a blur. <laughs> you got to have one, man. You got to have a flash bulb. Is it a concert? And, Is it a... Well, you know, I mean, and, uh, on any one occasion, a different one's going to come up, but uh, but what? Well, you know, I, I mean, just uh, what comes to mind immediately is the first time I played Massey Hall. I was opening for Pentangle. And uh, that was, uh, you know, I was pretty nervous, and, but but I had considerable admiration for those people. And, and uh, I did my set and then I got to listen to them. It was pretty good. Yeah. You know, and, and it worked out okay. People liked what I did. Um, in that same general era, playing Mara, the, the main stage at Mariposa, instead of Neil Young, who had had a problem and couldn't get there or something, um, you know, it was, a, it was an amazing shot. Uh, with, I was blind with fear, but but the uh, but looking back on it, I can remember what it, you know, looking out at the audience and thinking, this is really, aside from being totally surreal, it's 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 really great. Mm. Look at all these people, and mm. they're all kind of smiling. Mm. They're not like throwing things or anything. Yeah. And and <laughs> and uh, so you know, and that put me in front of of the Toronto audience, which was a, a great gift. You know, so, so stuff like that come to mind. But I also think of of all the travels that I've been privileged to be able to engage in, uh, both recreational and development-related and, and touring-related. I mean, all, just all kinds of different places to go and reasons to be there. And, and um, you know, I, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff to pull memories out of. I, wanna, I want you to put the headphones on one last time, if you don't mind. <laughs> Because okay. I think I think you know part of this kind of legacy we're talking about is going to be the artists you've influenced, and I, I wanted to play this. I'm going to invite uh, Stephen Page from the Bare Naked Ladies to come and join me on this song. When your lovers in a dangerous time. Lovers in a dangerous time. Lovers in a dangerous time. So that's you and Stephen Page of Bare Naked Ladies performing your song Lovers in a Dangerous Time at a benefit for Music Without Borders. I couldn't find the year for it, but do you, do you remember that? I don't remember what year it was, but yeah. I do remember doing it. Um, yeah, interesting. Those, we did that a few times. That, um, there were times when it was the whole gang and I played together um, and other times where it would just be one or two of them and we'd do, we would do that. That's the, kind, that's the one that launched them, man. You know, like their cover of Lovers in a Dangerous Time was the one that got them their name out there. Yeah, and it, uh, and it, it wasn't even on their album. It was on a, on a so-called tribute album. Of, to you. To me, yeah. right? And, and, well, I mean, there were a lot of Toronto artists, good ones, saw fit to contribute songs to that record, but... Um, but that that was the one that got the the attention on radio for sure. Does that what does that does that mean something to you? To I mean, I can tell as you even with the way you say it was something like a, I guess a tribute album. I guess to me, which is you know very Canadian. And well, I'm, I'm shuffling. I'm down, and, you know, I know, I know. I'm Irish Catholic, Bruce. But. I get it, man. I can't. You know, <laughs> when people ask me how it's going, I kind of go, oh, well, you know, it's uh, you know, okay, yeah. I kind of wish I had a problem, uh, but <laughs> but there's it, always one lurking. Yeah, you, know, you can be comfortable about <laughs> I'll, that. I'll take some of yours. Yeah. Uh, I think that um, that must be meaningful to know that 
not only you, you've made your mark in other musicians, that other musicians going forward were influenced by you. That must mean something to you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to make of it really, but it is, it's certainly complimentary. Um, and, you know, where it will go. I mean, in, in 50 years, will anybody remember any of us? You know, I don't know. Mm. But it's nice that, I mean, nice is a stupid word. It, it's It's gratifying and heartwarming really to have the music spread out have my music spread out, uh, you know, in in society, um, and that people think it, enough of it to want to sing it themselves. That's a great thing. So I saved the hard question to last. <laughs> so let's say rumors of glory. The Bruce Springsteen. Oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> I did it myself. <laughs> did it myself. <laughs> rumors of glory. The Bruce Coburn biopic comes out. The you know the the story of Bruce Coburn's life on on in the movie theaters. You know your walk the line. Your life's on screen. The credits roll, goes to black. What song is playing? Hmm. I might not have written that one yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, you could play any one. It depends on, on the tone of the movie. If well, the movie was true to life, uh, they might play Night Train. If, if it's, you know, kind of Hollywoodized, they, they might play Lovers in a Dangerous Time. Yeah, but why, why Night Train? I feel like that's the true when one. I, when I, yeah, I, when I wrote it, I mean, I, I, I've, it's a, my life is a little bit different now. But when I wrote it, it felt like I had written a kind of personal manifesto, like a my own particular state of the world observations, you know. And uh, and I think it kind of still holds up as that, although I feel a bit more hopeful, generally speaking, than that song might suggest. But. Um, but but I I think that kind of sums a lot of stuff up. And or if they wanted to get like maybe even a little hipper, um, uh, if I can think of the name of the song. I mean, whenever I try to think of the names of anything these days, they go away <laughs> and then come back an hour later. Um, but uh, let me just. Well, I'm sure I'm sure Bernie will know it if you say it. I'm sure, I'm sure I'm sure say it, what the song is. Kind of say it. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. So the song that they would that they really should put there is "Tie Me at the Crossroads," which is a, a little bit of an uh, you know sort of a couple of observations on fame and and legacy. You know, "Tie Me at the Crossroads when I die," uh, "Hang Me in the Wind till I Get Good and Dry," and the kids that pass can scratch their heads and say, "Who was that guy?" <laughs> "Tie Me at the Crossroads when I Die." That would be a fitting end for a movie about my life. I think that sounds good to me. Nice to talk to you today, Bruce. Likewise, this was Thanks. fun. That is the song Bruce Coburn says should be playing over the end credits to his biopic. I think it's pronounced biopic. It's called Tie Me at the Crossroads. Earlier you heard my conversation with Bruce. I spoke to him last fall about the release of his 34th album, Crowing Ignites. Today he's just released True North, a 50th anniversary box set. It features three of his albums on vinyl, his self-titled debut record, The Charity of Night, and Breakfast in New Orleans, Dinner in Timbuktu. 
Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. is Tom Power. Okay, so let's take the music of Prince for a second. Like whether you know just an album or whether you know just even just one song, right? The chances are pretty low that once you hear Prince, you forget it. That you could ever forget his sound, his legacy, or his mystique. Even so, lately there's been a ton of new Prince stuff popping up to remind you how great he was. Prince died in 2016, and this year his estate has been opening up his archives. Today, Prince's estate and the label Warner Brothers are releasing a brand new super deluxe edition of his album, Sign of the Times. Super deluxe. A lot of people say it was Prince's most important album. It came out in 87. And even if you know it backwards and forwards, the new deluxe version, sorry, super deluxe version, gives you a chance to hear all these extra tracks in a way that you never heard before. So here's, here's where we step into this. Back when the original album came out, Prince's recording engineer was a woman named Susan Rogers, legendary recording engineer. And we asked her to take you through a gateway, through one of the greatest records ever made, Prince's Sign of the Times. Here's Susan now. Let's set the stage for this album. In 1986, when it was recorded, Prince had finished the Under the Cherry Moon movie and, and parade album, but his life was going through some changes. Wendy and Lisa, his longtime collaborators, were parting ways. And shortly after that, um, Prince's fiance, Susanna Melvoin, Wendy Melvoin's twin sister, left also. Uh, so Prince was in kind of a dark time in his life. And Prince is reflecting not just on his own personal life, but he's reflecting on the world in general. Oh, yeah. The first song I want to talk about is the lead single and the title track, Sign of the Times. Francis skinny man died of a big disease with a little name. By chance his girlfriend came across a needle and soon she did the same. At home there are 17 year old boys and their idea of fun is being in a gang called the Disciples High on Crack, toting a machine gun. Listening to this record, careful attention to the lyrics will show you that he's talking about the world, but he's also using the world as a bit of a metaphor for himself. For example, he says, But if a night falls and a bomb falls, will everybody see the dawn? But if the night falls 
and a bomb falls, will anybody see the dawn? He was talking about the error of the Cold War, but he also means a movie that he had had called The Dawn, and he was wondering, would the world still be standing for us to listen to The Dawn? Some say man ain't happy, truly, until a man truly dies. His relationship was dying at this time. His band was uh, changing. This is Prince um, just reflecting on the times, and that was something that he didn't do very often. That was what struck me the most about it. Next up, we've got If I Was Your Girlfriend. One of the things that strikes me about If I Was Your Girlfriend was uh, how impassioned it is. And I think primarily it's the innovativeness and the boldness of the vocal. If I was your best friend, would you let me take care of you? Do all the things that only a best friend can. Uh, Prince is talking about his his relationship with Susanna Melvoin, and he's asking why can't he be as close as she is with her twin sister and with her girlfriends? Why can't he have that kind of intimate relationship? It was a really bold move. The vocal technique that you're hearing in the song, If I Was Your Girlfriend, was achieved by very speeding the tape machine. You would slow the tape machine down while you recorded the voice or the guitar or whatever, and then when you brought it back up to its regular speed, the whole pitch would be shifted higher. Now, at one point, he was going to use that vocal technique to release an album by an alter ego called Camille. This character Camille was neither male nor female. Uh, That was right around the time he was also ideating that the Sign of the Times album might be a three-record set. At one point it was called Dream Factory. So the Camille voice is present here as Prince on Sign of the Times album and on If I Was Your Girlfriend, the song. I remember that after the record was compiled, It was some consideration as to whether or not that song should be released as a single, and Prince asked me what I thought, and I encouraged him to release it as a single, and he asked me why, and I said, because I've I've never heard a man say these words before. I've never heard that before in song. Hey, my name is Susan Rogers. I was Prince's recording engineer from 1983 to 1988. You're listening to my gateway to Prince's Sign of the Times. The next song in this gateway is You Got the Look. You'll hear Sheena Easton's vocals on the chorus. I remember Sheena coming to the studio, and he asked her, we set up the mic, and he asked her, do you need to warm up your voice? And she just said, no. (laughs) And he looked at me and laughed. He said, that's a real professional. The real singers don't need to do these vocal warm-up exercises, which is not true. (laughs) I've worked with Katie Lang, and Katie Lang does hours of vocal warm-ups, and she's brilliant. It was funny to hear this refined woman singing Your Body's Hecka Slammin'. Let's get to ramen. (laughs) Prince laughed about that. The next song we're about to get into is The Ballad of Dorothy Parker. I'd like everyone to listen to just how funky this track is.
How funky is that? Dorothy was a waitress on the promenade. Susanna Melvoin, she taught Prince a lot, but one of the things she taught him about was Dorothy Parker, this American poet and short story writer and essayist who was renowned for her quick wit. Prince was really eager to get this song recorded. But as it turned out, as we're recording this song, I'm recognizing this console sounds awful. The whole thing sounded like it was muffled, like it was under a blanket. And Prince was okay with that. It's not that he didn't hear it. It's that he was cool with it because the song had come to him in a dream. So the whole thing is about this dream state. He had a dream. He told me about it. He had. A, he wrote about it. You can hear what he said. He had a dream that he met someone and she had a really quick wit and he really liked that and she tried to seduce him but he said no I'm kind of going with someone and that was Susanna at that time and, and uh, she says well let's take a bath and he says great but I'm leaving my pants on <laughs> that was um, that's again Prince was a very honest lyric writer and when he, what he tells you in this lyric is what he was thinking you really hear his roots on this album and if you listen closely to the ballad of Dorothy Parker it reads as a pure narrative he's telling you a story but that is one funky story what a great track our final song in this gateway to Prince's Sign of the Times album is called Adore When we were making Adore with Prince, he spoke out loud about how he wanted to win back his core audience, meaning the folks who listen to R&B and soul, and he thought this song would do it, and in fact it did. It uh, is a classic soul ballad. It's a true, genuine expression of love. He was engaged to Susanna Melvoin at that time, so it's safe to say that she inspired it. Uh, it's, a, it's, an, it's another masterpiece. And in Prince's larger legacy, many critics and scholars consider Purple Rain and Sign of the Times to be two peaks, shall we say, of an intense creative period by an intense creative artist. I think it is safe to say that Purple Rain and Sign of the Times represent the beginning and the end of an important phase in Prince's life, the phase where he went from being an up-and-comer to being realized as one of the great American artists of our time. Hello, this is Susan Rogers. I'm the former recording engineer with Prince, and I'm currently a professor at Berklee College of Music in Boston. You've been listening to my gateway to Prince's Sign of the Times. Prince's strange and perfect magic, as she puts it there, is still with us in all kinds of ways. You heard from Susan there, Susan Rogers, one of Prince's recording engineers. Uh, what a gift to hear her take you through one of the greatest albums ever, Prince's Sign of the Times. A brand new super deluxe edition of that album just came out today. I'm reminded of something, I mean, this is a little pretentious of me, but I'm reminded of something the author Zadie Smith said to me one time, where she was like, what a gift, what a joy it is that tonight you can just open up a masterpiece. And tonight, if you choose to listen to the sign of the times, you can just experience a masterpiece. And what a, what a, what a gift that is. 
My name is Tom Power. So all this week, we've been featuring different artists on the show who are using their art to try to help us get through these difficult times. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's a little little tough out there. It's a part of a project we call Art Connects on Q. The conversation you're about to hear is part of that series. And it all begins with these two artists who live 3,000 kilometers apart. Their names are Simone Saunders and Takiki Walker. Simone lives in Calgary, Alberta, works with textiles, stuff like rug tufting, Takiki lives in Cleveland in Ohio, where she does a lot of digital art. But a few months ago, they started working together, even though they've never met in person. They agreed to be paired up as part of something called the Long Distance Art Series. It's a project that's kind of like Tinder for artists, like matchmaking for artists. The organizer connects different artists online, then gives them a deadline to create something together. So we were curious about this. Like, how did that work out? So we called up Simone Saunders and Takiki Walker in their respective hometowns. Hi, guys. How are you? Hello. Doing great. It's nice to see you. I guess it's nice for you to see one another, which I guess doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) So, Simone, I want to get the story here. Take me back to the day you guys got paired up. What made you want to work with someone you never worked with before? Yeah, you know, Nick Green, who runs the festival out of Toronto, had already posted and showcased my personal work on the website. And he called me up and was like, hey, you know, I'm looking forward to doing these collaborative series. And is there an artist in particular who stands out to you? And Takiki's work was just mesmerizing to me. Um, The content, um, the black content, the color palette, the vibrancy of her work. And so immediately he reached out to Takiki and uh, she shared the same sentiments, which was really, he, in terms of matchmaking, he did a wonderful job. And from there, it continued. I mean, it, it is such a risk to take in so many ways. Takiki, what, 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 what was behind you taking a risk like this to work with someone you'd never met before? Um, I, think, uh, I, I think I was just at a point of wanting to do something different. Um, this was like my first kind of like big collaborative project. And I remember after submitting my work to the social distancing festival site, Nick reached out to me via email and he told me about someone's work. And I had already seen her work on online. And I was like, well, I love her work pretty much for the same reasons. A lot of um, the content and the vibrancy, just like her color palette and just, I don't know, she just seemed like a really dope artist. And I was like, I'm so excited. I want to work with her. And um and lo and behold, like the connection kind of like formed that way. So I was excited. <laughs> so, so Takiki, when you guys, tell me about your first Zoom call. Was it a bit awkward at first? Like how, how did it go when you first started talking to one another? Oh man, I am the queen of awkward anyways. So. <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell, but um, I think our conversation kind of happened, you know, organically, just talking about the things that we were interested in and within our own work um, and just trying to find things that we would want to collaborate on and kind of like extrapolating on that. And so it just, it made things like, okay, like we're here, we're in this mix together. And so, you know, just, you know, treading those waters together. It was really, it was really nice to do. Simone, tell me a little bit more about this call. Like what did you have to get to, what, what did you have to ask one another in order to figure out your working collaboration together? Yeah, I guess first and foremost, it was really understanding one another's process and what we like to focus on within our individual practices. And then we started talking about the pandemic itself 
and different articles and resources that we were both discovering, especially in terms of marginalized communities and how they were not receiving the equitable care that was deserving of them. And from there, Tikiki and I really highlighted a particular article from the Washington Post about two black men who were being stalked in a Walmart for protecting themselves by wearing masks. And there was something in particular within um, the article where the man said that he created masks of different color palettes, Carolina blue, lime green, bright pink, so that he would appear less menacing, you know? And Takiki and I thought that that was a really great starting point to start our individual pieces from that color palette. Simone, I want to go off what you're saying there. Like, again, tell me a little bit more because visual art is not easy on the radio. Can you describe for me a little bit about what you guys worked on? Absolutely. So my work in particular, jumping off that color palette, I work with a tufting gun, which is creating textiles to be hung on the wall. And so I'm essentially weaving these threads together to create a portrait. And for me, um, I discovered um, creating a masked man wearing a hood and just really looking into his face and taking the color palette and the shadows on his face and creating a very vibrant uh, portrait of a black man. And behind it said, Black Lives Matter. Takiki, tell me a little bit about, about your work in this and like how you, how you approach this in terms of the work that you do. Um, thank you, Tom. Um, a lot of my process deals with trying to do like research. And so I'm really interested in like layering images um, from past times in like American history, um, things that might have underlying connections to like racism or like slavery within America. Um, and so a lot of that is like layering like different like images or like layering colors um, and trying to create a new piece from that. And so it's really a lot of it's more contextual based rather than just, you know, an actual like piece. So I'm really interested in like the meaning behind things. Um, and so like our article with the Washington Post, it was kind of the, the perfect, you know, jumping point to kind of like um, explore those issues with race and oppression within America, but just with black folks around the world and stuff like that. And so everyone who might be experiencing similar issues within the pandemic. And so I just kind of wanted to jump off of that and go from there. You know, and, and I want to be clear here, what I'm about to talk about is nothing new, but it is um, something that, that is, is worth talking about. You know, you guys did start working, you know, during the pandemic, but you started working together before the, uh, the killing of, of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis and the, and the you know, the, the movement we've seen since then. Takiki, has that changed your work? Has it made you reflect differently on the work you've made together? Oh, definitely. I'm... Well, excuse my language. I'm frankly like about everything. It's just, it's a, a lot of things that are going on with a lot of injustices with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and just a list of names that you can think about. And just thinking about my work moving forward, I want to keep, you know, talking about those issues and yeah, like um, layering with uh, things that may have happened with Black folks in America in past times. And um, I'm, I'm just really like upset about everything that's happening within America and just, you know, the lack of support and lack of transparency and just feeling like our community doesn't really have like the agency to, 
really, I don't know, feel worthy or just feel like, you know, we have a space of feeling, you know, like we exist within the world. Yeah. It's, it's, some, it's something that we've been, I mean, hopefully reckoning with in Canada as well. And, you know, Simone, I'm, I'm curious as to like the conversations you had, because in some ways you're able to speak between two, two countries here too. Absolutely. And when we were first discovering our work and sharing resources, I think that was the most poignant thing was that two Black women were able to connect over this line in the sand, you know, across uh, borders and really talk about a Black history and what was meaningful to both of us. And within Calgary itself, there's a very strong Black community and it's within those rallies and within the movement that even the Black community here has discovered that. There was a lot of surprise and, and a lot of discovery within the protests, realizing what strength there was here in Canada. And so to stay connected with Takiki is so important. And, and what, Takiki, what, what, um, what perspective, hey, that you're able to share with one another you know, across the border, you know, the perspective of a Canadian in this, the perspective of an, of, of an American in this. Yeah, um, just that at the end of the day that, you know, I believe like humanity is just what connects us all. You know, everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has an experience. And at some point you can find some key element that connects you with one person or just a group of people. And um, that's what I kind of like wanted to, you know, explore more with working with Simone. So. Yeah. Um, Simone, now that this now that this great experiment has sort of worked out, is there <laughs> is there a plan to continue it? Are you guys going to continue to working together? <laughs> we hope so. We definitely hope so because there's there's a great energy between the way that we collaborated and the approach that we have with one another. Although, granted, like the climate right now, it's it, it's sometimes hard to stay connected because there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of um, unfortunately disconnect that can occur. And so I really do yeah. hope that Iki and I can stay connected and to keep that sisterhood because we really are here for one another, even, you know, within these two different countries. So yes, we both definitely know that we want to continue working with each other. I guess finally to kick you to you. I mean, one thing that I found particularly inspiring about the story of the, of you two guys is that, you know, I, I originally found out about it at a time when we were all so far apart from one another, when we were stuck inside each other's houses and we all felt so disconnected from one another. And to I, I wonder before we go, you know, have you learned something about how art can maybe build bridges by doing this work together? That it can really get to the truth of the matter. <laughs> And raising awareness about things and um, choosing not to avoid real things. And so I think with everything with the pandemic and all of the protests that are going on, just so much other stuff that's going on within the world, I think that it's just really important to connect. I think it's I think it's beautiful that you did. And thank you so much for talking to me and uh, and take care of yourselves. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, too. Takiki Walker is a multimedia artist in Cleveland. Simone Saunders is a textile artist in Calgary. They started collaborating early on in the pandemic. This week on the show, we've been showcasing conversations with five artists who use their work to help connect people in these difficult times. It's a series called Art Connects on Q. You can check out all of the artists and their work over on our website, cbc.ca slash Q. 
That is it for the show today. Monday on the show, I gotta say, one of my favorite guests. I just love whenever she's on, and I can't believe I'm in a situation in my life where I can be like excited whenever she's on, is the great Diana Krall. We'll see you then later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.